Welcome to the Life Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church based in North Dallas with a desire to help people love God, love people, and make a difference. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Tonight I'm uh, continuing a series that I'm calling uh, Lessons from the Prodigal. Uh, Lessons from the Prodigal. If you were here a couple of Sundays ago, I, I kind of preached a little bit through Luke 15, through the three parables there. It's a parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son. And uh, just felt like that there was more there that I wanted to kind of get to that I could get to in one service. And so uh, as I continue to you know, study through this a little bit, I shared some uh, last Wednesday, and uh, I'm going to do so again tonight. But we, we're going to be focusing, if you've got your Bibles and want to want to get them ready, we're going to for the most part, being Luke 15, we are going to spend some time in Genesis and some uh, in Hebrews as well. But uh, Luke 15 is where we're really focusing, and I'm attempting to learn and and glean what we can from this account of the prodigal son, because none of us ever want to find ourselves in the place where he was. None of us want to find ourselves as a prodigal. So that's the motivation. Uh, to focus on the revelations that we can we can uh, see and, and and hear and learn from in this passage. So uh, we're going to put this on the screen, but let me remind you that the definition of the word prodigal is lacking restraint, and so that's that's what that word means to to live without any kind of discipline, to live without any kind of guidance or conscience, to lack. Restraint. It really is talking about indulging the flesh to live according to the desires of the flesh. And so we may all, if we'll, if we'll be honest about it tonight, and I talked about being honest last Wednesday night, we need to be honest with ourselves, we need to be honest with others, we need to be honest with God. And when we're not honest with ourselves and, our, and with others, then we're not being honest with God, right? But I, I really, really think tonight, if we'll think about it, that we may all have areas of our lives where the prodigal principle applies, an area of your life where maybe you could use a little more restraint. We, we all have areas of our, of our life that, uh, that maybe we reserve for ourselves and we don't completely yield to the Lord, an area of our life where we lack restraint, where we indulge instead of refrain. So keep that in mind as, as we go through this tonight. But let, let me begin with an illustration about a card game that uh, was very, very popular in Mississippi where I grew up. And, and it's, it's not just in Mississippi, but where I was, it was definitely popular. Where my wife grew up in southern Mississippi was definitely popular and uh, it's something that, you know, families got together and friends got together. And they played this game called Rook. Is anybody familiar with that game? I mean, it got serious when the rook cards got broke out. I mean, friends could quickly become enemies. I've seen more than a few arguments. I mean, you would kind of expect it on the basketball court, but, you know, arguments around a rook table. But, I mean, it, it, it got very competitive. And I, I remember that uh, there'd be times where you know, my people in my family, my family's friends, those that were kind of in our circle, and I wouldn't necessarily do this, but I remember them playing all night long. They might not pray all night long, but they'd play all night long. 
they'd have rook tournaments, right? That they did it down where my wife grew up. They'd have they'd have rook tournaments. This was a big deal. This this card game would just kind of kind of you know really uh, was kind of addictive, I guess you could say in a way. It was a big deal, and a lot of people enjoyed it. But let me just tell you, if you're not familiar with the game of rook, I'm not going to tell you all the rules because listen, it's one of those things that I what I, I tried to learn how to play rook for years, and I never really learned how to play until I sat down at the table and got the cards in my hand and actually started trying to play. So I'm not going to try to tell you all there is about this game. It is pretty complex, but in the game of Rook, there is something called a, a, a trump card, okay? You've got the Rook card, and that's, that beats everybody, but then each hand, you select a color, whoever wins the bid. I know I'm getting down in the weeds a little bit, but whoever gets the bid, they can say red is trumps, or green is trumps, or yellow is trumps, and for that hand, it doesn't matter what kind of a good card you've got in your hand. If someone plays a trump card on top of your card, then they win. And it's just they, 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 win, that, they win that hand. And so, so it gives you an advantage. When you had cards in your hands, you had more trump cards in your hands than the other three players did, then that gave you an advantage. To have that trump card was an advantage you held over your competition because really they, they could play, and here we go again, you know, getting in the weeds, but you know, they, could, they could play a 14 of, of red. But if Trump's was yellow, you could play a two of yellow and you win. Right? Doesn't make sense. But, and I'm not saying that game makes sense. But that's, that's just kind of how it went. And you had an advantage if you had a Trump card. So can I just say that, that we need to be careful as believers that we don't give Satan a Trump card over our lives? We, we, we need to be careful that we don't, we don't give him something he can weaponize against us, that we don't give him something that he can use to have an advantage of us. Listen, let me, let me say it like this. You can be doing well in your life. You can be faithful in going to church. You're serving on the dream team, leading a life group, tithing, being faithful in your tithing, doing all of these good things, doing all of these right things. But all the while, there may be this one area of your life that's not totally surrendered to God. And so while you're over here doing all these good things, all of a sudden, Satan can throw that trump card on your life. Satan can throw that, that trump card down, that, that one thing. He can, he, can, he can bring it into the picture, that, that, that one weakness of yours, and he can take you down. Though you're doing this and though you're doing that and though you're involved here and though you're doing all these other good things, this one thing he can use and he can use it to, we to weaponize, to, to take you down. Does that make sense? So if not, I hope it will before we're done. But I believe that we see a similar scenario with the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But before I do, let me just say that, you know what, I think that if we're not careful, that we will tell the enemy what the trump card is in our life. I think we will tip him off 
about if we're not careful with our words, we will tip him off. Listen, have you ever heard somebody say something like, you know what, if that ever happened to me, I, I just don't know that I could recover from it. What, what are we doing? We're speaking to the air, and who's the prince and the power of the air? Right? You know, it, 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 if that happened, I, I just don't know that I could serve God. If my, if my husband ever did this, then I think that would be the end of it, right? Why, why do we say things like this? Why, why should we say things like that? Listen, the devil, I'm not trying to build him up tonight. I'm not trying to make him more powerful than, than he is. The devil is not omnipotent. There's only one that's omnipotent. And the devil is not omnipresent, and he's not omniscient. But he does have demons all over the place. And he does have demons that are listening for him. Kind of like Siri and Alexa. They're listening when you don't even realize it. Matter of fact, my watch is probably about to start talking to me. So when the enemy hears you make a statement like that, you know what the enemy's going to do? Hey, 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 listen to what I picked up about him. Listen, this is what I picked up about her. This is what she said. This is what he said. They, they may have been working on, on your husband in 10 different areas, but now all they've got to do is work on one thing. Now all they've got to do is focus all of their attention on one thing because of what you said. Hey, if this happens, I just don't know because you gave him the trump card. Listen, Jesus defeated Satan 2,000 years ago. I'm not talking about somebody that we need to be fearful of, but I am talking about somebody that we, we need to watch. We need to watch our verbiage. We need to watch what we speak. Satan, Satan, Satan is defeated and under our feet. Jesus, he, he stole from him the keys to death, hell, and the grave. But I'm telling you tonight, don't give the devil any power. Don't give him something that he can use to get an advantage in your life. So let, let me show you three areas that the prodigal son gave an advantage to the enemy. All right, this, this was the first one, and the first one is with secrets. Tell, tell your neighbor he had a secret. He had a secret. Let's, let's go to the Word of God. Here's what it says in Luke 15 and 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. Two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And the next verse is really where I want to draw your attention, verse 13. Here's what it says and how it begins. And not many days after. You see, you see this? He, he went to his dad, I want my inheritance. And not many days after, the younger son, he started packing. He gathered everything together, and he journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possessions on prodigal living. Jesus said that it wasn't many days after he got his inheritance. It wasn't many days after he got the money. It wasn't many days after he got what he wanted. It wasn't very long after that. Listen, you know what that tells me? That tells me that the younger son was already planning this escapade. He'd been dreaming about this. He had been fantasizing about what he was getting ready to go do and how he was getting ready to go live. 
And so we're able to see here that what was going on in his heart, we were able able to see here what was going on in his mind because before he ever got his inheritance, he was already scheming. He was already thinking about it. As a matter of fact, it was was probably, most likely, his very motivation to ask for his inheritance in the first place because he had a secret plan. He had something that he was getting ready to do. And the secret was that, you know, he thought that, hey, you know, if I just had enough money, I could really live good. I could really enjoy myself. I could really be happy if I wasn't living under all these rules in my father's house. I would really be happy if I could just have a little bit more freedom and do the things that I want to do. Listen, it was a secret in his heart, but it didn't stay there. That secret began to impact him. That secret is what led him to go to his father, and this was not customary. You didn't get your inheritance before your father died. And really, in essence, that's the the message he was communicating to his father. You're dead to me. Give me what's mine. And so it began to cloud his vision. It began to to cloud his behavior and his choices. It impacted his life, even though it was merely a secret in his heart. So let me talk for a few minutes about secrets. I touched on this briefly last Wednesday night, so I'm not going to be exhaustive here. But the secrets I'm talking about, these are the thoughts that reside in your heart. They're, they're the thoughts that, 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 that circle and uh, circulate in, in, in your mind. And they're, they're, they're either thoughts that the enemy has planted or they're thoughts that we allow him to exploit in our minds. And that, that's why 2 Corinthians 10 instructs us to cast down imaginations. Tells us we've got to take control of our thoughts. We need to make them be obedient to Jesus Christ. Cast down those those thoughts in your mind. Cast down those imaginations. Listen, the root word for imaginations is the word image. Everybody say image. So imaginations, the root word there is image. And you know what? It's an image that we magnify. That's what an imagination is. It's an image that we magnify. And so where do we magnify that image? In our minds, in our thoughts. So what you picture in in your mind, what, what you image, if you will, in your mind, what you think about is what you'll become. What you image in your mind is ultimately what you're gonna do. You've heard people say this before, just, just picture it in your mind. Just image it in your mind, right? If you can just get a glimpse of it, if you can just see it in your mind, then it can become reality for you. Well, listen, the Bible says it like this. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You're not just going to keep that secret in your heart. You're not just going to keep that image in your heart. Eventually, it's going to impact you. Eventually, it's going to affect you. As you think in your heart, the Bible says, so are you. And church, because of that, it is important for us to not have the wrong image in our minds, to not have the wrong picture in our minds. In other words, don't imagine a good relationship with someone other than who you're married to. 
Don't just say, oh, this is just a secret thought, and this is just how I cope, and this is how I get by. And, and you have an image of, of a relationship that could, be, that could be this and it could be that, and you're thinking all the while of someone else. Listen, don't give the enemy that advantage over you. That, that's what you're doing is you're saying, hey, here's a trump card that you can play against me. Don't fantasize about what you would do if you were rich. Oh, if I just had all the money, you know, I would do this, and I'd go there, and I'd do that, and, you know, sinful behavior. No, 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 don't fantasize about that. If you're going to fantasize about being rich, let it be because, oh, you know, I'd be generous, and I'd do this for the work of God, and I'd try to, I'd try to I'd, you know. But if it's leading you to think sinful thoughts and things that appease and fulfill the flesh, then you got to get that out of your mind. you got to get rid of that image. You, you got to put the right thoughts in your mind and not give room for secrets to ferment and grow. Amen? So the prodigal son, he had some thoughts that, that he kept secret, and he never told anyone about it. He had a secret, but as soon as he got what he needed to activate it, it only took him a few days. Just a few days. We read it, read it just a moment ago. Just a few days, and then he acted upon what was already in his heart. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to shift gears here a little bit. Genesis 1, beginning in verse number 5, says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the world, world excuse me, the earth was without form and void and darkness. I want you to notice this word darkness here. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and he saw that it was good. And God divided the light from what? From the darkness. Now listen, God created a lot of things. But church, darkness isn't one of them. According to what we just read, the darkness was already there. We, you know, many, many theologians believe that, that the reason it was already dark, that that was the state of the world, is because Satan had already fallen uh, to the earth, and he lives in darkness. So, so let me just kind of back up to what we just read. We, we didn't read in verses 1 through 4 anywhere where God said, let there be darkness. We didn't read anywhere where he said that the darkness was good. But we did read where he said, let there be light. And he said that the light was good. Speaking of darkness, Jude 6 says this, And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority. Talking about the fallen angels, demons. They didn't stay within the limits of the authority that God gave them. But they left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely. Where does he keep them? Chained in prisons of darkness. Waiting for the great day of judgment. So these are fallen angels here in June, Jude 6. These are, these are demonic spirits, and they live, the Bible tells us, in darkness. They are, they, they are kept in that place of, of, of darkness where there is no light. Now let me ask you, where are secrets kept? In the dark. The best thing you can do with a secret is to bring it into the light. 
I know I talked about this a little bit last Wednesday, but I, I feel like we need to drive this home. The best thing that you can do with that thought the best thing that you can do with that imagination, the best thing that you can do with that fantasy, the best thing that you can do with that image is to expose it to the light, is to get it out of the darkness because the darkness is where demons live. The darkness is where evil lives. I want you to know this tonight. We're going to put this on the screen, but darkness is no match for the light. I want you to think about this. When you go home and it's dark when you get home and you, and you flip that light switch on, listen, when you turn that light switch on, there's no struggle that commences between light and darkness. Who's going to win? Is it going to stay dark? Is it going to become light? There, there's no wrestling match that takes place between light and darkness. No, but I'll tell you what happens. Immediately when you turn that light switch on, light immediately expels the darkness. Instantly, there's no delay. Light overtakes the darkness. Light shines into the darkness. And so if you will just get that secret, and if you will just bring it into the light, listen, you're going to be a long way towards having victory. Praise God. I've heard it said before that when people cheat on their spouse, when, when, when they fall morally, they, they, they'll say things like, you know what, it didn't start out physical. We just really connected. We worked together, and we just had some really good conversations. And, and I, I shared some things with her. I shared some things with him that, that, that I didn't share with my spouse. And, and we just, a, a deep emotional connection emerged, and didn't start out physical, but we connected emotionally, and now because of that, I'm in love. Well, of course you are. Because you did something with someone else that you should have done with your spouse. And if you would have done that with your husband, or if you would have done that with your wife, you'd probably still be in love with them too but you're sharing who you are. You're sharing your thoughts. You're sharing your dreams. You're sharing there's nothing being held back. There's an emotional connection that has taken place. So many times that's what people will say who, when, when they fall. It didn't start out. I never intended for it to be this. I never thought that it would become that. It really started out just as an emotional connection. But church, could it be that the enemy of their soul knew that they needed emotional connection? Could, could it be that, that the enemy saw, hey, that's a weakness. That's an area that we can exploit. Could, could it be that the enemy knew that there were some things that were being withheld and he used those to his advantage to wreck a marriage? And he used those things to destroy a family. So listen, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna move on here, but church, we can't harbor secrets. We can't live a duplicitous life. We can't live one way in public and another way in private. We can't come and put on airs and then be someone else in isolation. Come on, we can't harbor secret. Don't withhold your feelings and emotions from your spouse. Really, this is not a marriage message tonight. But while I'm here, don't withhold things from your spouse. 
Share your heart. Share your feelings. Second advantage the prodigal son gave to the, to the enemy was sin. And I know you're probably all thinking, well, that, that is just about as obvious as it can be. But We all know this about the prodigal son. We all know about the riotous living, the prodigal living, as it says in the New King James. We, we all know about the partying. We all know about the prostitutes. That's what the older son says. He went and spent all the money on harlots. We, we all know about the indulgence. We know about the lack of restraint. But church, all of that was already in his heart. It was already in his heart. Before he acted on it, it was already here. Let's go to Genesis 25 to another narrative here to kind of bear this out. Verse 29 says this, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau, Esau is his brother, came in from the field, and he was weary, and Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom, and Edom simply means red. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. Verse 32, And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die. I'm hungry. I'm getting hangry. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So listen, this Old Testament concept that's dealt with in this passage, this concept of the birthright, that birthright blessing, that's really not something that we deal with in the United States in the 21st century. That's not something that we deal with a whole lot in our culture. It's a little bit foreign to us, but listen, it was a very prominent thing in Jewish culture. It was a very, very central thing in Jewish culture. And we we may not fully understand it because it's not a part of what we do. We we probably understand the inheritance part, right? We kind of get that, but, but, but there's so much more to the birthright blessing than merely a financial inheritance. As a matter of fact, that birthright blessing of the the eldest son, it involved honor. The honor bestowed upon the firstborn and him alone. It, it, it involved the honor of being the next patriarch of the family. That when dad passed away, now you're the head of the family. You're the leader of the family. Whoever was the firstborn, they also had an honor given to them. That anytime they sat down for a meal, anytime the family gathered for a feast, that that, that firstborn always sat by the father. He had that place of honor seated by the Father. That birthright blessing also involved authority, authority to conduct business in the Father's name. None of the other kids could do that. None of the other children could do that, but that that firstborn could. He could go out and and execute transactions for his father. He also had authority with the elders at the city gate, and the city gate is where where, where business was conducted, and he could go, and he could represent his father, and 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 the the elders would look at him like, like the father was there. Simply because they're the firstborn. And yes, also the birthright blessing also involved inheritance. Because the firstborn received twice as much. He received twice as much as the other children. He got double than what any of his siblings got. So that's what's going on here. So I want you to know that Esau didn't just give up a financial blessing. But he gave up authority. Authority. 
and he gave up honor. All for a bowl of soup. Does anybody remember getting just mad at Esau when you was hearing this story in Sunday school? Any, only, only me? Am I the only one? I mean, I remember hearing this story. It's like, you know, let me just get a hold of him. What are you thinking? How could you be so? I'm not going to say that, that word you tell your kids not to say. But this, this, is, this is an amazing aspect of this. The New Testament, I want you to pay attention. The New Testament likens what Esau did to sexual sin. There wasn't anything sexual in what we just read. But in the New Testament, it likens what Esau did to sexual sin. Because listen, mo- most of us think, you know what, I'd never do what, I, I can't believe what Esau did. I, I can't believe what he gave up just to satisfy his flesh. We, we'd say, you know, we'd never do that. But, but what would we do to satisfy our, satisfy our fleshly appetites? Because here's what I'll tell you. I know people who have given up everything for one brief moment of gratification. They've given up their marriage. They've given up their family. They've given up their occupation. They've given up their ministry. They've given up the call of God on their life all because of one fleshly appetite. That's what this account between Esau and Jacob is talking about, and that's how it's referenced in the New Testament. Listen, because sin always takes you further than where you want to go, and it always costs you more than you're willing to pay, and sin always keeps you longer than you thought that you would stay. It always does, because that's just the way that sin is. So let, let, let me attempt to deal with, with a difficult, difficult topic that we find in the Old Testament. And I'm sure if you're like me, that as you've read through some of these passages, it's caused you to scratch your head and wonder, you know, is God really, is God really good? And, you know, we sing songs about it, but then we read the Old Testament and we're like, you know, how do I reconcile, you know, what I believe about God and what I'm reading here in the Old Testament? So let, let me attempt to deal with something here. Many times in the Old Testament, God would tell his people that when they went in in battle and when they conquered a land, he'd tell them and he'd say, go in and kill them all. You know what I'm talking about? He'd say, go in and wipe them out, even the women and the children. I'll admit that's difficult to think about. That's, That's difficult to digest, isn't it? We need, we need to understand a couple things. And one is that you have to know that these nations had been given a chance to repent. They had been given a chance to serve God. God raised up men like Joseph, and he sent them to, into Egypt. God raised up men like Joshua. God gave them a chance to turn to him. God gave them a chance to serve them. God gave them an opportunity to turn away from their false gods and to serve him, but they didn't. You might recall that God told Saul, God said, I want you to destroy the Amalekites, Amalekites, destroy every one of them, take them out, even the children. But what did Saul do? He didn't do it. He didn't kill them all. He let some of them live. So do you know what the result of that decision was? Saul fought the Amalekites the rest of his life. Because he didn't wipe them out, 
They plagued him for the rest of his life. And listen, Saul was ultimately killed in a battle with guess who? The Amalekites. So why would God say to kill the little ones? It's because little ones grow up. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that everything in the Old Testament represents something to us today. It represents something to us as New Testament believers. And so in this case, listen, it was because children don't stay children. They grow up. And this is why I'm saying this. You might not think that you've got a big sin in your life. You might think, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. This is just a small thing. I can manage this. I can handle this. It's just a little one. But can I tell you, little ones grow up. And if you don't kill those sins while they're small, they're going to come back and they're going to kill you one day. Listen, we can't allow sin. We can't give the enemy an advantage over us. We can't allow little things to be reserved. We can't live with unrepentant sin in our life. We've got to drag it out into the light. We can't leave it in the darkness. Because if we do, we give the enemy an advantage over us. It doesn't matter how many good things that you do if you've got that one thing. doesn't matter how many great and big things you do if there's that one little thing that's left to remain. Here's the third advantage, and I'm moving quickly. The third advantage we can give the enemy is shame. And the reason for this is because shame is a result of the fall. I want you to think about the very first thing that Adam and Eve felt after they fell. They felt shame. They sinned, they disobeyed, and shame come flooding in, came flooding in. It, w- it was the first thing they experienced after sin, shame. What did it cause them to do? They'd enjoyed fellowship with God. They had enjoyed daily encounters and communion with God. They walked with God in the cool of the day. But once sin entered the picture and once shame came flooding in, the Bible says they hid from God. Even though God had never given them a reason to be afraid, even though God had never given them a reason to hide from them, they were so overcome with shame that they hid. They felt shame for the first time ever, and it drove them from God rather than drawing them to God. The prodigal son felt it as well. That's why he turned to the pig pen first once the money ran out. He was feeling shame, and so he went to the pig pen instead of going home. Let's let's go again to Luke 15. Look at verse 18, and here's what it says. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Verse 19, and here's what he says. And I am no longer worthy. I'm shameful. I don't, I don't feel like, like I'm worthy of your, of your kindness, of your goodness, of your generosity, of your provision. I'm no longer worthy. That's the feeling that shame elicits in our life. We're not worthy anymore. We don't feel deserving anymore. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Yeah, we've already dealt with this. We're not going to go all the way back through it, but the father received him back as a son. That's what happened. And yes, he got a big party thrown for him. But listen, after the party was over and after daily life resumed, listen, you know that he had to still have memories of what he did. 
You know that he still had to be haunted by those, those memories of what he did in all of that riotous, prodigal living. And he lived with scars that were inflicted in his life by his sinful choices and behaviors. Yes, he was back in the father's house, but he bore the scars of sin. Yes, he was forgiven. Yes, he was received back as a son and not as a servant. But no doubt, he probably still battled with shame, wanting to creep back in. He probably still had to work to keep shame at bay and to remind himself, hey, I've been forgiven. I'm back in the Father's house. My Father loves me. He probably still had to battle with that. Listen, church, listen, I believe you can get healed. You can be healed. You, you can live a life of sin in the past, and I believe that the Lord can pull you out of that, and you can go on to live a good life. You can go on to live a great and a joyful life. But can I tell you that insecurity can cause you to battle with shame? Can I also tell you on the other, the other end of that spectrum that pride can cause you to battle with shame? Anybody here know what I'm talking about? Insecurity and pride, they can cause you to battle with your past. They can cause you to battle with what you've done and what's happened in the history of your life. Listen, if you have, if you've come up against those things and you deal with insecurity or you deal with pride, listen, that is an advantage that the enemy wants to exploit. It's a trump card that Satan holds over you so he can trigger shame in your life. And when you begin to get serious about living for God and when you make up in your mind, okay, I'm finally going to do this and I'm going to get involved in ministry and I'm going to begin serving in the church. Listen, you know what the enemy does? He's like, I'm holding on to this card. I'm I'm holding on to this advantage. And, And he'll begin to stir up those feelings of shame. You're not worthy to do that. You're not worthy to be a child of God. You're not worthy to serve in that way. He'll start stirring up those feelings of shame in order to stop you. Does anybody understand what I'm saying tonight? Does anybody relate tonight? Yes, God may forgive. God will forgive. And God may choose to forget. But can I tell you, your enemy doesn't. It's just the way that he is. And if he can have an advantage over you, you better believe he's going to hold on to it. So when he begins to exercise that advantage over him, you, 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 don't, need to let it, you don't need to listen to the voice of the adversary. So what's the answer? I'm not, I'm not trying to, to be discouraging tonight. I don't believe we're going to end in discouragement. But here, here's the answer. It's found in the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Verse number one says this, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The writer of Hebrews is referring to this, uh, the writer of Hebrews is referring to all the, the heroes that were recorded in the previous chapter, in chapter 11. He's talking about this, this great cloud of witnesses, all these great men and women of God, these, these people of faith who overcome all kind of situations. That's who he's referring to. And he said this, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, others have gone on before us and they've made it. Others have made it through. Others have overcome. Here's what he says. So let us lay aside every weight. Let me say it like this. Let us lay aside the shame. 
Let us lay aside the baggage of sin. What does sin introduce? Shame. It's what happened in the garden. They sinned. Shame came flooding in. He said, we, gotta let, we can't let those weights keep us from running the race. We can't, it's not even sin, but it's, it's attached and it's connected. It's weighty, it weights, it pulls us back. We've got a race to run. We've got a finish line to get to. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't, don't let that baggage keep you back. He goes on to say, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus. The author and the what? Come on, somebody say that a little bit louder. The author and the finisher of our faith. Listen, that's good news to me. Because he who has begun a good work in me, amen, he will complete it. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And what did he do? Despising the shame. The New Living Translation says it like this. He disregarded the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 1 Corinthians 1 and 18 tells us, or the message of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. Is there anybody out there tonight who's being saved? Is there anybody out there who identifies with that statement? You hadn't arrived yet, but you're in process. You're not perfect yet. Here's what the cross is for those of us who are being saved. It is the power of God. So church, the way that we get rid of the enemy's advantage over us, it's to run to the cross. The way that we get out from under that and, and we take that advantage away from him is to go to the cross. And listen, you don't just go to the cross one time when you get saved and say, that's it, I, I've been there, I've done that. No, you keep going to the cross. You keep running to the cross. You go to the cross to get saved and you go to the cross to stay saved. You go to the cross to walk in victory. Because to those of us who believe, the cross is the power of God. Oh, hallelujah. Does anybody need a little bit of power in your life? You're going to find it in the cross of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? I keep taking my secrets to the cross. I keep taking my sins. I don't hide them. I don't keep them in the darkness. I keep taking them to the cross. I, I, when that shame begins to bubble up, when that shame begins to come back in, what do you do? You take that shame to the cross because the cross is the power of God for those of us who believe. The cross, church, is still the answer. Come on, we're never going to outgrow the cross. The cross is never going to go out of style. It is the power of God. It's still the answer. So go to the cross every day. Go to the cross and take your sin and place it on the cross. Take those secret desires and put them on the cross. Take your shame and put it on the cross. Stand with me tonight. The enemy wants to have an advantage over you. But the way you spoil his advantage is you go to the cross. Listen, the enemy may have an advantage over you tonight because you've given him one. 
But can I remind you that God has an advantage that trumps the devil's advantage? And it's an old rugged cross. It is a blood-stained cross. And when Satan begins to point out your past to you and talk about all the things that you've done wrong and all the opportunities that you've missed and what you've missed out on and what you've messed up, listen, all you need to do is remember the cross that Jesus nailed your sin to and remember the cross that he nailed your shame to. He disregarded the shame. Oh, I wonder if somebody would lift up your hands right now. Come on, could you lift your eyes to the cross tonight? Could you remember the great sacrifice he made so that you could be freed, so that you could be liberated, so that you could live in victory? Oh, hallelujah. Oh, there's victory in the cross tonight. It's the greatest advantage. The cross is the power of God for those that believe, for those that are being saved. It's the power of God. Let the Lord work that power on your behalf. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you were inspired by today's sermon. Connect with the Life Church through our website, tlcdallas.com, and on Facebook and Instagram at TLC Dallas. Remember, together we can love God, love people, and make a difference. God bless.